Our scripture reading for this morning is from Daniel. We've been in Daniel. Um, It's going to be chapter 4, verse 37 through chapter 5, verse 1. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Kate, so much for welcoming us this morning and for reading God's Word. Uh, My name is uh, Paul Brandis, and I serve here at the Brookside Campus of Christ Community as one of the associate pastors, and I, um, what, hold hold on, is it, oh, oh, how did this, oh, man, I, you see, I, I'm born and raised in Chicago. Maybe you knew that, maybe you didn't. And, and, and I fully adopted the Royals as my American League team last uh, couple years ago when Ashley and I moved here. But, I mean, come on, 108 years. I, ha- I had to pull the hat out this morning, I think. Yeah, thank you. You know, cl- clapping for me as if I was on the field. I love that. That's great. We'll just, we'll just go ahead and leave that here this morning, just as... I, mean, I probably can't get away with that too many more times, so, and it's going to be another hundred years before they, before they win again, so, so let me have it, please. <laughs> um, no, thank you all uh, so much for being here, for uh, joining us this morning as we continue in our series in Daniel. I'm really excited about uh, this story in God's Word. It's, it's an exciting one, um, and so I would love to invite you to, to pray with me as we ask for God's help to, to help us understand what he's trying to tell us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for each and every one of these individuals that they have trusted us with their time this morning. I pray, Father, that you would uh, speak through me and that uh, I would diminish as you increase. Uh, I pray, Father, that your word would reign supreme here and we would understand what it means that there's writing on the wall. Pray all of this in your name. Amen. Well, I'm wondering if you were as confused as I was hearing the last verse of Daniel 4 read and then right away the first verse of Daniel 5. You see, Daniel 4.37 is the end of King Nebuchadnezzar's letter to his entire kingdom. Uh, Daniel 4 tells the story we studied last week of how Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by the most high God, the high king of heaven, the one true God. And and he writes this letter to all of his subjects telling them of of his story. And then Daniel 5 verse 1 reads this, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. It's confusing, right? I mean, maybe you're like me and you're thinking, wait, did I miss a verse or 10 somehow? Uh, Who's King Belshazzar and and what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? I was just getting used to that guy. Uh, Here at Christ Community, we're in week six of a series in the book of Daniel. And each week to this point, King Nebuchadnezzar has featured as a major character. I mean, there's even one week where he's in the story and, and Daniel's not. But here at the end of chapter 4, with, with no warning whatsoever, King Neb, as we've called him, just is gone. And I think more than anything, this is to drive home the point that, that the book of Daniel is not really about King Nebuchadnezzar. And despite the name of the book, it's, it's not really a book about Daniel either. 
The title of our sermon series is Life Without Control. And through the stories of Daniel and his friends who are living as prisoners in a foreign nation, we've seen how we can not just survive when we don't have control, but we've actually seen how to thrive. And that's the big idea of the book of Daniel. We can thrive without control because God, the true main character, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Daniel, God is always in control, even if it doesn't seem like it. And our story this morning from Daniel chapter 5 underlines this point once more. We start the story with a new king, Belshazzar. We're at least a couple decades into the future. Daniel 4 to Daniel 5 has just fast-forwarded us through 20 or 30 years of history. King Nebuchadnezzar is long dead, and we have a new king, Belshazzar. Well, sort of. You see, Belshazzar is not actually the true king of Babylon. That's a position that belongs to Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus. And this actually is an important point for us to consider this morning because for a lot of years, people pointed at this as proof that the Bible could not be trusted historically. Basically saying, uh, the book of Daniel, it says, it says that King Belshazzar was ruling over Babylon, but we know that's not true. We know that it was actually Nabonidus. See, the Bible can't be trusted. But then, more archaeological evidence about Nabonidus' reign was discovered Evidence that indicates that for his 17-year reign, he was actually absent from the kingdom for about 10 of those years. And who? Who did he leave in charge as his co-regent while he was gone? His son, Belshazzar. There was even a tablet found that had an inscription of a prayer on it. A prayer for King Nabonidus and for his son, Belshazzar. And the unique thing about this prayer is that typically it was reserved only for the reigning monarch, but it was addressed to both of them. So what we have here in Daniel 5 is Nabonidus as the true king of Babylon, and we have Belshazzar as the assistant king of Babylon, or maybe assistant to the king of Babylon. Come on, the office? Is that, okay, thank you. I got a little nod there. I mean, is that just me? Assistant to the king? That's pretty good. All right. Top dog or not, Belshazzar knows how to party like he's the main man. He throws a party for a thousand of the most important people in the city. And this isn't a fancy tea and crumpets type of deal. We shouldn't be thinking about Downton Abbey. We should be more thinking about a college rager. (laughs) And while a king throwing a drunken party is curious enough behavior, it actually gets a lot worse if we zoom out from Daniel 5 and consider the broader historical context. You see, because in the intervening years between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5, Babylon's power and influence globally has waned. The Persians, the Persians have actually been increasing in their power and influence so much so that while Belshazzar throws this party, the enemy, the Persians, are at his doorstep. They have the entire city of Babylon surrounded in a siege. Now that's confusing, isn't it? The enemy is at your doorstep and you throw a party? Some people think that this is the classic move from Belshazzar. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Maybe. But, But I think there's a more likely explanation. You see, there's two features about the city of Babylon that we shouldn't miss. The first feature is that the city of Babylon had massive walls. 
massive, which in a siege situation is a, is a mark in your favor, isn't it? I mean, if you can keep the enemy out, that's one step in the right direction for you. But there's still an easy counter for the army on the outside, even if you have massive walls. Patience. It's a little bit like the toddler that locks themselves into the bathroom. I might not be able to get in there, the parent thinks, but they can't stay in there forever. I mean, that's how most sieges end. The trapped city runs out of food, or, or more commonly, the trapped city runs out of water. Their water supply dries up. And that's where the second feature of the city of Babylon comes into play because you see the river Euphrates ran directly through the city, providing an abundant supply of water, not only for the people, but also for crops and livestock. So between the river, the walls, and the food already in the city, most scholars think that the Babylonians were ready to hunker down for a 20-year siege. 20 years And so with this party, it's as if Belshazzar is thumbing his nose at the Persians. Siege? What siege? Sure, go ahead, sit outside our walls. We're just going to be inside partying, and no, you're not invited. I mean, that's some kind of pride, isn't it? It's one thing to succumb to pride from where Nebuchadnezzar was sitting. We talked about this last week. He looks over out at everything that is his. He's the boss of literally the entire known world. It's like, okay, I I might be prideful if I were Nebuchadnezzar. But from where Belshazzar is sitting, cornered, trapped, under siege, but still partying, it's a bit more curious. In fact, this whole scene is so ridiculous that scholars go back and forth trying to answer this question. Just how drunk was Belshazzar? As in, the only explanation for his actions must be major overindulgence because nobody could be this dense. And he may have been drunk on wine. We we can't know for sure. But I think what's obvious is that Belshazzar was intoxicated on pride. He had become inebriated with his power, position, and seeming security. So much so that he had completely forgotten what we hopefully have learned over and over again in Daniel, that no matter who is on the throne, God is always in control. Belshazzar had clearly not learned this lesson, and I think it's clear by what he does next. Look back at Daniel 5, verse 2. Belshazzar commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver, that Nebuchadnezzar his father, which can also mean predecessor, or one, one that came before me, so he commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. Why? Why did he do this? That the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Jump to verse 4. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. The party is raging and, and Belshazzar, he gets this, this brilliant idea He thinks, we worship the gods of gold and silver, don't we? And and that silly nation Israel with the temple and, and all of their one true God nonsense, didn't they have cups of gold and silver in the temple? Hey, hey, bring those to me so that I can drink out of them to show how much better my gods are than this so-called one true God. We cannot miss the complete and utter insanity of this moment. 
I mean, we sort of kind of bristle against blatant disrespect and irreverence, right? Of course. That's what's happening here, but it's not just happening against anyone. You know, Belshazzar hasn't picked a fight or shown disrespect to just any old person off the street. He is showing blatant disrespect, idol worship, and irreverence against Yahweh. He has lifted himself up against Yahweh, the one true God of the universe, the one true God who is always in control. This is unbelievable. And if we've learned anything from these last few weeks in the book of Daniel, it's that Yahweh, this God that Belshazzar, the one true God that Belshazzar has lifted himself up against, we've learned that Yahweh doesn't sit it out on the sidelines. He gets right involved in the midst of it. And this has led to some strange happenings in the book of Daniel. Bizarre dreams, a miraculous escape from the fiery furnace. It's led to a king eating grass. But what happens next in Daniel 5, I think, is the weirdest thing yet. Daniel 5, verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Now, this may seem so far out there that it's hard to even imagine. I I, I get that. It's like I can't even really picture that. But try to imagine the last dinner party that you were at. What would you have done if Thing from the Adams family had just appeared out of nowhere and started scribbling and doodling on the wall. You might be a little bit confused, nervous, scared, yeah? Yeah, you and Belshazzar both. Verse 6, Then the king's color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The phrase, his limbs gave way, actually could mean that he uh, lost control of his bodily functions. I won't paint much more of a picture than that. But can you really blame him? I mean, listen, if, if a disembodied hand shows up at my next dinner party and starts scribbling on the wall, I might poop my pants too. <laughs> as you would expect, as any of us would react this way, Belshazzar is highly motivated to figure out what the writing on the wall means. I mean, a hand shows up, you're not going to be like, all right, sweet, that's cool, bring out the next bottle of wine. It's like, what is that writing on the wall? And so he calls in the wise men of Babylon. And in Daniel, we've seen this movie before, haven't we? Something strange and weird happens to a king, like a hand showing up or a dream, right? The king calls in the wise men and magicians for help. He offers them this incredible reward if they can figure it out, and no one can figure it out. And and in Daniel 5, the final scene of the movie is exactly the same too. Who swoops in right at the end to save the day and explain what's going on? Daniel. Except this time there is one plot twist. Because you see, Belshazzar has totally forgotten about Daniel. He doesn't even remember him. In Daniel 5, 9, you can look, he's still freaking out. None of his so-called wise men know the meaning of the writing on the wall. So who comes to his rescue? to remind him of Daniel, the queen mother, Belshazzar's mommy. (laughs) You see, for Belshazzar, this party has gone from bad, pooping in your pants in front of a thousand guests, to much, much worse. 
his mom showing up to bail him out. <laughs> so Daniel, Daniel is brought in before Belshazzar, and, and at this point, he's no longer the young man that we met back in Daniel 1. He's most likely over 80 years old. He's had a long and distinguished career. Daniel has figured out how to thrive without control in Babylon. And yet, Belshazzar shows him zero respect. Daniel 5, verses 13 and 14. The king said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom, my king, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. It's like he's saying, oh yeah, you're that little slave boy that King Neb brought back from Judah, but you're all grown up now. I, I think I remember hearing about you. And this stands in, in major contrast to how King Nebuchadnezzar dealt with Daniel, which then helps explain the difference between how Daniel interacted with King Belshazzar versus King Nebuchadnezzar. With old King Neb, Daniel is clearly contrite and broken over the bad news. He's emotional that he has to deliver this to him. Bill talked about that last week. But with Belshazzar, we observe a different approach. He's flat, direct, and to the point. He refuses the king's offer of a reward, and he gets right into the bad news, starting with a retelling of King Nebuchadnezzar's story. And you can almost picture Belshazzar during these verses as Daniel retells him the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. He might have been thinking, yeah, yeah, I know all this. King Neb turned into a cow, etc., etc. I got it. Why are you wasting my time? And then verses 22 and 23, the ultimate mic drop from Daniel, the killer punchline, where he says this, and you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, Though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. In other words, in refusing to learn from the mistakes of your predecessor, you have put yourself in a far worse position. Belshazzar, if this is what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, what do you think is going to happen to you? And you can kind of picture the, the question just kind of hanging there for a moment in the air. And then without even giving Belshazzar a chance to, to answer, Daniel moves on to interpreting the writing on the wall. Three words with the first one written twice. Mene. Mene, Daniel says, your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. You see, the Bible teaches that all of our days are numbered, but that's why mene is written twice. The repetition underlines the imminence of this truth. Your days are numbered, Belshazzar, and that number is zero. Shekel, shekel, weighed, Daniel says, weighed. You have been weighed and found wanting. God placed Belshazzar on his divine scale, and he came up as unworthy. That's an understatement, isn't it? And parsing, parsing, divided, Daniel says. Your kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Mene, mene, shekel, parsing. Numbered, weighed, divided. Well, how does our story end this morning? Daniel 5, verses 30 and 31. That very night, 
Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That very night. The ancient Greek historians Herodotus and Xenophon both record that Babylon was overtaken on the night of a great feast. Numbered, weighed, divided. The writing was on the wall for Belshazzar, and he faced the reality of that message the very same night. But here's the thing. Just like Belshazzar was a fool for not learning from the example of his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, we, we would be fools to not think that we have something to learn from those who have come before us. So let me offer a few thoughts from our story this morning to help us consider how we are preparing ourselves to not only read, but respond to the writing on the wall that is there for all of us. The first, the first observation is this. The writing on the wall is greater than the wall itself. The writing on the wall is greater than the wall itself. Remember, Belshazzar thought he was untouchable because of his river and because of his walls. And you can almost understand why. Take a look at this artist's rendering of the city of Babylon. These massive walls, this river that's running through it. I mean, I might feel pretty safe inside this, even if there was an enemy on my doorstep. But here it is, the great irony of Daniel chapter 5. The very things that served as the source of Belshazzar's confidence and security ended up being the source of his demise. You see, while Daniel was finishing his speech to Belshazzar, the Persian army was finishing up construction on a dam. A dam that stopped the flow of the river Euphrates. And once the flow of the river was diverted, the riverbed completely dried up and the Persian army stepped down into it and walked underneath the walls, the great impenetrable walls. The Babylonians didn't even have anybody guarding the walls because they thought they were so safe and secure inside. Little did Belshazzar know that the writing on the wall would be greater than the wall itself that he had trusted in. But, but we do the same thing, don't we? Pastor and author Brian Chapel on this point. We must consider this truth not only in the context of this ancient account of an arrogant king, but also in terms of our lives today. There are walls we too may try to erect to protect our sin from the wrath of God. We must see these walls for what they are. Foolish defenses that must be abandoned for our own welfare. So let me ask you, what wall are you wrongly trusting? What wall are you wrongly trusting? We need a good answer to this question because misplaced trust will result in God's judgment. Maybe your wall is intellect. I can outsmart God's judgment. Maybe your wall is morality. I can obey my way out of God's judgment. Maybe you're a student here today. Your wall might be your youth. I remember thinking when I was in high school, I have plenty of time to figure out how to avoid God's judgment. I don't need to worry about this today. Maybe you have a large bank account. Your wall might be money. 
I'm successful enough to be weighed and found undeserving of God's judgment. He'd never say shekel about me. Is your wall entertainment? I can distract myself from the reality of God's judgment. It's not really coming. God's not real. Or maybe, and this one is a little bit timely, maybe your wall is your political party. I can vote my way out from under God's judgment. And maybe people don't think that, like somehow voting saves me from God, but we do trust our political parties sometimes a little too much, don't we? Politics are important, of course. Vote on Tuesday, yes. But is it the wall that you're wrongly trusting in? Listen, no matter what your wall is, the writing on it, God's judgment is always greater. Always. And that's why we have to take the writing on the wall seriously. And that's our second observation for this morning. We have to take the writing on the wall seriously. We must take God's judgment seriously, not simply as a social principle or as an abstract concept, but as a personal reality for each and every one of us. And I get it. I get it. No one wants to talk about judgment, but deep down, we all know that judgment is something that should happen. And and if you, maybe you've observed this, judgment is also something that we all scream for. We demand it, except we just demand it for other people and not for ourselves. But we can't simply direct God's judgment and wrath at certain people as if it were a weapon for us to wield however we see fit. One theologian wrote and put it this way, if I want God's wrath and judgment to fall on evildoers, I must let it fall on myself. That's Miroslav Volf. I'll say it one more time. If I want God's wrath and judgment to fall on evildoers, then I must let it fall on myself. Listen, and and don't miss this this morning. The writing is on the wall for each and every one of us. The writing is on the wall for all of us. Because think about it. What was Belshazzar judged for? For pride, for idolatry, for irreverence. Who among us has not failed those tests? Who among us could be weighed on God's divine scale and not come up wanting? There is writing on the wall for all of us. So the question is this. How seriously are you taking it? How seriously are you taking the writing on the wall? Now, Belshazzar was clearly fearful at the sight of the handwriting on the wall, but I don't think we should be too quick to give him credit because what was Belshazzar really fearful of? Was it a fear of God or or was it just a fear of consequences? There is an important difference and, and it boils down to why we think our wrongdoings are wrong. When it comes to our sin, do we see it as something that is destroying us, destroying others, and destroying our relationship with God? Or is our sin simply something that humans do, just a mistake that we make? It is not enough. It is not enough for our knees to knock in fear of consequences like Belshazzar's did. No, our knees must also hit the ground in worship hit the ground in worship as we grow in our fear, not of consequences, but as we grow in our fear of the Lord. 
You see, in the Bible, the fear of the Lord is a good thing. It sounds scary and maybe like something we shouldn't want, but, but the fear of the Lord is something to be pursued. The fear of the Lord, the book of Proverbs tells us, leads to wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. And boy, do we need wisdom today, don't we? And maybe you've observed the same phenomenon that I have in the 21st century. What I see is that we are information rich. We have more information than we know what to do with. We are wealthy beyond our wildest dreams when it comes to information, but we are poor and impoverished when it comes to wisdom. Information rich, but wisdom poor, and that is such a tragedy because do you know what we need to thrive without control? We need wisdom. I mean, even think back to the way that Belshazzar framed his address to Daniel. He's listing off all these things that he's heard of from Daniel. And what's one of the things? He says, I have heard that you are a man of great wisdom. Time and time again, what we have observed from Daniel in this book is that he lives without control in a beautiful, poetic way because he lives wisely. He lives wisely. Wisdom Wisdom looks at God and rightly recognizes his power, his majesty, and his control of all things. Wisdom looks inward at ourselves. Wisdom sees our our pride, idolatry, and irreverence, and wisdom weeps. And wisdom looks at the writing on the wall. Wisdom looks at God's right and fair judgment of each and every one of us, and it takes it seriously. So are you living wisely? Are you taking the writing on the wall seriously? Our final observation this morning is that the writing on the wall, the writing on the wall doesn't have to be the final word. It doesn't. The writing on the wall doesn't have to be the final word in which, you know, finally, some good news this morning, right? I feel it in the room. I mean, the Cubs, that's good news for me, but not for you all. I get it. Up to this point, we've had a lot of bad news. We've had terrible news. But the writing on the wall does not have to be the final word. That's really good news. But it should lead us to ask this question, why? Why isn't the writing on the wall the final word? Because Jesus, that's why. Because Jesus, Jesus, God in the flesh, who came to write on the wall with his own blood, declaring that we are justified because he became our judgment. There is writing on the wall for all of us and there is no escaping God's judgment. It's real and it's coming and we deserve it. That's the bad news. But the best news of all time is that the writing on the wall doesn't have to be the final word. The Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians writes this, two of the most marvelous verses ever written. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven all of us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is why the writing on the wall doesn't have to be the final word. In fact, the cross speaks a better word and the cross offers us a chance to read a better message. It speaks a better word and it offers us a chance to read a better message. The cross offers us a chance not to read a message of judgment. Mene, mene, shekel, parsin, numbered, weighed, divided, 
This is the message of judgment. But the cross, the cross offers us a chance to read the word forgiven because Jesus was condemned. The cross offers us a chance to look at the walls of our lives and see the word alive because Jesus was killed for us. The cross offers us a chance to see the word redeemed because Jesus was spent. The cross offers us a chance to see the word righteous because Jesus was made to be sin. He who knew no sin was made to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And the cross offers us a chance to see the word justified because judgment is coming, but Jesus was judged in our place. The cross speaks a better word and it writes a better message. There is writing on the wall for each one of us. There is. And that leads to our final question this morning. What does the writing on your wall say? What does the writing on your wall say? There is writing for each one of us and it's either going to say words of judgment or it's going to say the words of the cross. And my hope and prayer for all of us this morning is that when we look at the words on the walls of our lives, that we would not see words of judgment. My heart breaks thinking about that. So my hope and prayer is that when we look at the walls of our lives and when we consider this question, that instead of words of judgment, my hope and prayer is that we would say forgiven, alive, redeemed, righteous, justified. The words of the cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus. It's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus that the writing on the wall doesn't have to be the final word. In my own life, Lord, I'm eternally grateful for that truth. And I pray for each and every person here today that they would know that truth as well, Lord. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who makes all of this possible. Thank you for your Bible, for the book of Daniel, where we get to study your word and hear your voice speaking to us. That is precious, Lord. Thank you. I pray all of these things in your name. Amen.